You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 6 and verse 6. Uh, For sake of context, I think we'll read verses 1 through 11, but this morning our focus, as I said earlier, will be really entirely on on verse 6. There's so much in verse 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we look to you and we pray, Father, that you would bless us this morning, Father, that you would meet us here and give us understanding of these words that are are arguably, they're, they're quite difficult to sort out, Father. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us and instruct us and not only uh, open our hearts to this glorious passage, but, Father, that you would apply these words to our lives. Father, that we would, that we would see these truths uh, being um, in operation by way of your Holy Spirit in, in our hearts and in our lives and in the hearts and lives of one another. So we uh, not only ask these things for ourselves, but Father, we pray this for each other as well. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Earlier when we were reading this verse, as part of our uh, scripture memory uh, portion of our service, which I hope you enjoy that, it's... um, it does. You do see the text a little differently when you take it in little phrases, don't you? You know, than when you're just reading along. And it's kind of the way I want to look at verse six this morning. And uh, the reason I said let's look at the first two words first and just repeat those first two words is the first point I want to make this morning comes from those first two words that are in our text, namely the words "we know." I, I think that these two words are very easy to just skip over. Uh, It's very easy to read this text and not pay much attention to. uh, We know. Um, What's the big deal about these first two words? Well, the apostle seems to be saying something to the church in Rome uh, that in some respects he's assuming that they know. And um, otherwise, why would, would he say, well, we know. Uh, well, we know what? 
Well, we're going to answer that question this morning, but by way of introduction, as soon as we answer the question, what? We know what? We're answering that question with doctrine, are we not? Now, I realize that as I look and survey the room, I realize in many cases I'm preaching to the choir here, but um, nevertheless, um, the choir has to be preached to too, right? We don't want to forget the choir. Um, but I want to stress the importance of doctrine. It's really what I want to, imp- I, I, the, you know, it, as it comes up in Scripture, I want, to, I want to express the importance of it. And I think right here is a place where we need to stop and we need to express the importance of doctrine. You know, of, of, of the criticism that I have received over the years for what I do and my approach to ministry, I think that one of the, probably one of the, some of the leading criticism that I've received, and I'm okay with it, I think we need to learn to be able to receive criticism, is that, um, Rick, you just have a tendency to get too complicated, you know. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're like, um, you know, you think all the time and, um, you know, this stuff is like, too deep and you know um, there's an old acronym that you ought to pay attention to it's you know the acronym KISS has anyone heard that acronym before it goes like it's keep it simple stupid has anyone ever heard that before and like your messages are you know you know they're they're too complex and they're too complicated and and, um, I've heard that from folks uh, over the years, not from I don't, as I look around, I've never heard that from any of you. Um, I want to be open to criticism. We have to be open to criticism because I think we learn from criticism. When people come alongside us and they say, "You know, maybe you ought to think about this," or "Maybe you ought to think about this," I like to keep I like to keep open to that uh, because I think it's our pride that would be wanting to stick the arms out and say, no, 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 you know, we're doing everything right. Well, no, we're not. I mean, we have to be, we have to be open to criticism. But in regards to this, you'll notice that I haven't changed my ways at all. And uh, um, I'm not planning on it. Um, Paul says, we know. Doesn't he? We know what? We're going to answer that in a couple of minutes. But before I do, I think you can be rest assured that the church at large doesn't know. It doesn't. Do you talk to anybody? I mean, can you think of someone? How many people can you think of that you could say with confidence could explain Romans 6 to you? I don't mean to be unkind. But how many people do you know that you could say with confidence if you just said Romans 6 would have an idea of what Paul's argument in Romans 6 is even about. Or for that matter, how many people do you know could say, okay, well, yeah, Romans, I I got a kind of an idea of what Romans is about. How many people do you know could do that? When are we going to get around to teaching doctrine if we're not supposed to do it right now? If these... If these voices that are telling me, listen, you know, all this deep theology stuff has a tendency to kind of divide us. And, uh, you know, um, really, Rick, what this really needs to be is about your personal relationship with Jesus, not about like all of these really deep theological matters. I I want to answer that. 
if that is the case, Paul could have made Romans a lot simpler, couldn't he? I mean, couldn't this letter be a lot easier to understand if that was the case? Why did God give us these letters in, in places that are so hard to understand? Why has God done that? It's because doctrine does matter. And I want you to consider this. I mean, this idea that we know, we looked at verse 11 in an earlier message. What's verse 11 about? You remember the three pegs I was telling you about? Trying to give you something to kind of put this on to, 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 to organize your thoughts here. I think verse 11 is key to chapter 6. If you think about chapter 6 in your mind and you like outlines and you want to staple this to your mind and heart forever, so if someone were to come to you and say, what is Romans 6 all about? Think verse 11. Uh, verse 11 states it very well. Paul says you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And you remember the three pegs is reckon, right? Reckon yourselves. Reckon ourselves what? Well, here's some doctrine for you. One, you're dead to sin in Christ Jesus. And two, you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is all doctrine. And verse 11 is not a suggestion. It's a command. Now here's, here's the thing. These people are tempting me to sin. These people that are saying to me to, 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 to not do this are tempting me to sin. What is sin? Those of you who study the catechism, you know what sin is. It's any one of conformity to or transgression thereof the will of God, is it not? Any want of conformity unto or transgression thereof the will of God, right? What is the will of God? We've got a command in verse 11. What is that command? It's to consider yourselves, to reckon, to think about. You, you remember Festus and Gunsmoke. You remember that, that um, uh, illustration I used? We might say it this way. You know, if you watch an old movie, someone might come up and say, well, what do you think? Is it going to rain today? Well, uh, I reckon uh, no, being there's not a cloud in the sky. What does reckon mean? Well, we're looking around at the, what we see, the evidence. There's a couple of clouds. There's, you know, right now it looks, looks okay. It's not going to rain. This is what Paul's calling us to do. He's calling us to think. He's calling us to reflect what is he calling us to think and reflect on? Doctrine. And if we get it in our heads that we don't need to do that, then we've got it in our heads that we don't have to obey this clear command. And well, for that matter, we don't even need to bother to read it. People aren't even reading this stuff. Do you understand that? People aren't even reading it. People know so little about it. Because it's all about our personal relationship, you know. This week, you know, in the office, we've been talking about the shack. Well, you know, something like that comes down the pike, you know. And everybody's, listen, the church in the West is a sitting duck for a book like that. Because it's all about our personal relationship with Jesus and God is love. And, you know, that's all that matters. Doctrine just divides. And you get this her absolutely heretical teaching that people are embracing left and right. And asking people to embrace it left and right. Well, guess what? That's doctrine. It's doctrine. People are wanting others to read this book 
so that they can be indoctrinated, so that we can know what the shack teaches instead of what Romans teaches. There's more. There's, there's so much more energy to watch these movies and read these books than there is to read the book that God has given us. It's sinful. I'm going to make the case that it's sinful. How can I make the case it's sinful? Because the Apostle Paul calls us to consider ourselves what? Anybody. Dead to sin, alive to God. That's a doctrinal statement. Paul's calling us to reflect on these things. He's calling us to reflect on doctrine. So it's sinful not to do it. Well, okay, Paul is saying, listen, we know. The Apostle Paul you know, one, one further thought before I move on. If the Apostle Paul listened to these voices, he would have to edit his writings, wouldn't he? Especially if someone could come up to the Apostle Paul and say, you know what, even the Apostles are like saying, Paul, you're, you're, just, um, you're, you're, t- you're, you're just too complicated. None of us can understand. C- could you keep it simple, stupid? I mean, he'd have to do some serious editing work if he would have listened to those voices, wouldn't he? Now, that having been said, we need to make this as accessible as possible. Um, That doesn't mean we run out and we make things as complicated as we can make them. Usually when people are making things complicated, they don't understand them. So, like, when you hear me and I'm making things really complicated and you're like, what was that all about? Well, I probably didn't understand what I was talking about. And you can call me aside and say, Rick, did you really understand what you were talking about? I'll probably be honest with you. I hope I'll be honest with you. I might even say, not really. I'm making a joke here. I try not to say things. <laughs> You're supposed to laugh right now. <laughs> not check out on the rest of this message. The first point is we're called to doctrine. I mean, that's the first point. Paul says we know. Don't, don't go past that, um, that for those first two words so quickly. We know. We know what? That our old self was crucified with him, the antecedent of him, of course, is Christ. That our old self was crucified with Christ. Now, one of the reasons why I want to focus on just verse 6 this morning is because we've got a couple of phrases here that we need to, we need to unpack. And w- the first one is old self. What is meant by old self? Now, um, there are many in the church today that believe what happens at conversion is a new nature gets added to our old nature. And you remember last week, I introduced a word to you that I just wanted you to hear it. And if you don't get it this morning, don't worry about it. But if you read literature, if you read Christian books and stuff, you're going to come across the word ontology or ontological. How many have seen that word before? Nobody? Well, a few. Okay. Uh, once in a while, you'll get a phone call. I got a phone call mm, six months ago or something, and someone was listening to a, a message on the radio, and the, and the speaker, very popular speaker, very sound speaker, had used the word ontological, and they called and wanted to know what that word means. Ontological really is the nature of being. It's the nature of being. And last week, I, I said to you, I said, what's going on in Romans 6? Um, at least this idea of dying in, with Christ and being raised with him is not physical. Okay, we, we didn't physically die with Jesus, fair enough. You know, when Jesus went into his tomb, he didn't have to make room for every one of us in there as well, right? Physically speaking. So we didn't die physically with him when he died. 
Uh, I've, been, I've been arguing that it's forensic. Uh, you know, now I can hear someone say, there you go again, Rick, all these complicated terms. It's important that we get this. What do I mean by forensic? We can handle that. To think that you are so stupid that you can't handle the word forensic. You watch forensic science on TV all the time. You're not stupid. You can handle it. It's a declaration, right? God declares. Adam sins in the garden. Were you in the garden? I wasn't in the garden. Were you in the garden? It's not a trick question. Were you in the garden of Eden? No. But when Adam sinned, God declared all of us sinners, right? It's a declaration. It's forensic. And I've been saying this is forensic. It's not physical. It's forensic. But last week I said it's not ontological either. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for this reason. Here's what many folks believe, that when we are converted, a new nature, hear the word nature? Ontology concerns things like the nature of being, becoming, existing. This new nature is added to the old nature. So who is the Christian? He or she is a person who has been converted to Jesus and this new nature has been given to them and added to the old nature. So the new nature, the new self, is added to the old self. This is an ontological um, understanding or an ontological view. And as one writer puts it, I think it's very helpful, the believer now becomes kind of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I think that's a really good way to illustrate what's going on. Okay, um, how was yesterday? Well, yesterday I was really, yesterday I was, man, I was all about being Mr. Hyde yesterday. Uh, but the day before, I, I really was kind of like Dr. Jekyll, you know? I was doing pretty good, you know? I was the good guy the day before, but yesterday I was the bad guy. And this is what the Christian life is, you know? Some days the old man gets the best of us or the old woman gets the best of us. In other days, the new man or the new woman gets the best of us. And what we really are is this composite, if you will, of both old and new. And you can tell by the way I'm, I'm explaining this that um, I think there's a problem with that view. How many have heard that before or thought that before? Anybody? You can raise your hand. You're allowed to raise your hand if you've heard it. If you haven't, okay, some of you have heard it. If you haven't, you will hear it. Um, but what's Paul saying here? We haven't defined what the old self is yet, but reason with me. Paul says that our old self was what? What's the word he used? Our old self was what? Crucified. Now, if the old self is crucified, how can it continue on? Whatever this old self is, let's just... Let's put theology aside for a moment, not theologize the text. Let's just look at what it means. I, I, I can remember really puzzling over this for a long time, thinking, okay, Paul is telling us that the old self, whatever this old self is, is crucified. All right, does that mean it was mortally wounded? Does that mean it's had the rug pulled out from it under it, so to speak? Does that mean it's been like kind of debunked in some way. Well, crucified's a strong statement, isn't it? When Jesus was crucified with the three criminals, how many survived? 
100% fatality rate among those three, isn't there? And that there's some silly theories out there that Jesus actually survived it, and it's a silly theory, isn't it? How could you survive such a thing? Paul's using a really strong word. But even if we said, okay, well, maybe he doesn't really mean by crucifixion what he says. Uh, look at the context. In verse 2, Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? There's the word died, right? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? His death. Verse 4, we were buried. We were buried. Well, that's the natural thing that follows death, isn't it? A burial. Verse 5, we've been united with him in a death like his. Every single verse is emphasizing death. Paul is saying dead, 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 dead. So whatever this old self is, it's dead. Right? Has it been rendered like mortally wounded? Has it been like just had the rug pulled out from under? No, it's dead. Now, if you're with me right now, you might be thinking, wait a second. I mean, the life, the Christian life is a life of a constant struggle. This old self, I mean, it just, it seems to me like this old self is just always raising its head. Does anybody have that experience? Does it feel like the old self... Does it feel like the old self is raising his head? And someone might be thinking, man, you know, Rick, I'm thinking of what you're saying and I'm thinking about Ephesians chapter 4. How many are thinking of Ephesians chapter 4 right now? Anybody thinking about Ephesians chapter 4? You got a couple thinking. Why are you thinking it? Turn there. Turn there. Just keep your place in Romans 6 for a minute and turn there. If you're not thinking of it, you will be here in just a couple moments. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4.22? And you might be wondering, what's, what's the significance of it? You'll see very quickly. Ephesians 4.22, what does Paul say there? He's giving us a, a command. What is that command? It's to put off your what? Put off your old self. Paul, we need to talk. You've told us that the old self is crucified. Now you're telling us to put off the old self. It can't. What is it? You see the confusion here? Well, I can remember wrestling with this boy. What do we do with this? We're crucified. And then, okay, our old self is crucified. It's been put to death. Romans 6, verse 6. Ephesians 4, 22. Put off the old self. How do I put off what's already crucified? what's this all about? There's a real simple explanation. And actually, this explanation is so important in getting over personal vice. It's, it's important in getting over personal sin. We need Paul. Remember what he's telling us to do. He's saying, reckon yourselves. Consider yourselves. Consider yourselves what? Anybody, first one, what is it? Dead to sin. Second, alive to God. Okay, Paul wants to make it clear that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. What is going on here? Let's think of the greater context. 
In Romans 5, verse 12 and following, Paul tells us that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. We spent a lot of time on that verse, didn't we? And the reason we spent so much time on that verse is because this is like algebra. You've got to get these fundamental things down or you're going to find yourself really lost out in, 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 in Romans 6. When Adam sinned, we were all declared sinners, right? That is for what? It's forensic. We were all declared sinners. What happened to this world? This world became a realm of sin and death. And when we are born into this world, we are born into this world in union with who? Adam. And last week I said, I said this, we share Adam's position and we share Adam's condition. What is his position? Well, he's, he's, he's out of the garden, isn't he? Positionally, he's a rebel. We could say conditionally he's, he's a rebel. He's bent on rebelling against God. He's estranged from God. He's thrown out of the garden. A mighty angel is given the task of guarding the garden so that he doesn't return. He's barred from the garden. When we are born into this world, how are we born into this world? We're born into this world in union with Adam. Adam is our representative. Adam is our head. We share in his position and we share in his condition. But when we become Christians, who we were in Adam dies. This is a little easier to understand perhaps for folks who like myself, who were converted in adulthood. Because I can remember the old Rick Anderson quite well, and I have witnesses here before me that can remember him quite well also. But he died. He is no more. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. The old Rick Anderson, living and existing in Adam, died. That old person died. Let me, let me try to put it another way. With utmost sincerity, I can look at all of you and I can say, you know something? I'm not what I should be in Christ. You know, I, have to, I spend a lot of time repenting of my sins. I'm not what I should be in Christ. I can say that with utmost sincerity to all of you. And, and I hope that probably all of you would say the same thing about your own selves. I'm not what I should be in Christ. I don't know the Bible as well as I should know the Bible. I, I don't walk with Jesus in a way that I know I should walk with Jesus. I don't pray in a way I should pray. I don't do anything in the way that I should do anything. I'm not what I should be. Be, but I can also look at you and say with all sincerity that I'm not what I was. I'm not what I used to be. I'm not doing this perfectly, but I sure am not that person I used to be either. Well, why is it so important in getting over sin? Because it sets you free. Why is Paul doing this? Let's look back at verse 6 again. Romans 6, verse 6. Paul says, we know. Why does he say we know? If you don't know, he wants you to know. 
Because it's crucial that you know. And anybody that tells you, why fuss over this? Why come together? And you guys all sound like a bunch of eggheads studying all this stuff. Listen, be happy to be an egghead and study all this stuff. Because Paul wants you to know it. Why does Paul want you to know it? Because the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to tell you that God wants you to know it. God wants us to know this. That's why we have it, because God wants us to know it. He wants us to know what? Well, let's read on. What is the answer to the what? Well, it's doctrine. Your old self, who is that old self? The person you used to be in Adam. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, the person that you used to be in Adam has been crucified with Christ. You're not in the realm of sin and death anymore. You've been extracted from it. You're now... In Christ Jesus, right? You see the words, in order that? In order that? Now last week we looked at that phrase, didn't we? That phrase, in order that. What is it? It's a purpose stage, right? It's a purpose phrase. It's saying that there's a purpose for this. God has a purpose for this. Okay? The old self has been crucified with Jesus. There's a purpose to it. It's in order that what? Look what comes afterwards. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now we come to something that's really difficult. And commentators have been really puzzling over this for a long time. Namely, what is the body of sin? Now, one comes along and says, well, that's, that's, uh, that's just fallen humanity. Then another one comes along and rightfully points out, no, I think it's more than that. Uh, and they gather and they huddle and they get together and they... They focus on it, and uh, I think really the, the, the clearest explanation that I have seen is given by Douglas Moo. He's written a commentary on Romans. He's written a couple of commentaries. One on Romans. It's about this thick. You know, I mean, you can use it as a booster seat for your little ones. You know, you can set it on the chair and give them a good four or five inch uh, rise up to the table. It's so thick, uh, but it's thorough. And um, what Douglas Moo says is. Um, in essence, this, if I might simplify it a little bit without taking any of the uh, profundity out of it, he says that the, the body of sin, first of all, we have a, the word body here. Some would say that, okay, the body of sin, okay, here, here it is, uh, body evil, you know, soul good, and redemption is getting rid of the body and uh, just being in a state of soul. It's what the ancient Greeks taught. Uh, no, uh, that's certainly not it. What Douglas Moo says is that it is in our bodies that we make contact with this world, isn't it? Let's think about what sin is. What is sin? It's any want of conformity to God's law. It's being out of step with God's law, being out of step with God's will, right? And transgressing his, his clear commands, right? It's being out of step of God's will, being out of step of his commandments. What part of us does that it's the will isn't it will sometimes say of a child who is just bent on doing the exact opposite that we tell him or her to do we say that child is a strong what a strong willed child why do we say that because they have this determined will to rebel now, when we are rebelling, what do we use to carry out these ideas? 
lot of times when we're rebelling, a strong-willed child will begin with what? These two little flappy things right here on our face. They begin with the lips, right? If you've ever had the opportunity to have any part of raising a strong-willed child, you know the answer to this one. You need no commentary on this one. Those lips are moving. And they're saying things that infuriate you. That will makes contact with this world by way of those lips. I think this is the best explanation of this. We have been crucified in Christ in order that those lips will be brought to nothing. That makes sense? We have been crucified in Christ in order that those hands that used to steal would be brought to nothing. We've been crucified in Christ in order that that body that used to dance in places where that body shouldn't have danced would be brought to nothing. Does that make sense? Why? Because the person is no longer that person well we're still us aren't we but not in union with Adam any longer look at the last part it's another purpose statement so so that we would no longer be what anyone enslaved but the, the Bible doesn't use the word addiction very much um, a lot of folks wrestling with addiction they they look in their Bibles and they can't find addiction. There's a couple certain translations will use it. I think the ESV uses the word addiction twice. But the Bible uses the word enslavement all the time, doesn't it? That's a good word to use. All of us in Adam, you see, life in Adam is a life of enslavement. When Israel was in Egypt and they were being forced to make these bricks, did they have any choice to do it or not to do it? What happens if we have a strong-willed child in Egypt and tells Pharaoh, I'm not making bricks? What happens to those lips? They didn't have any choice. You're making bricks. And that's illustrative. That's an illustration of what it's like to be in Adam, in union with Adam. We make bricks. Why do we make bricks? Because the boss tells us to make bricks. That's why we make bricks. And we can't get away from the boss. Who is the boss? Well, it's ourself. As we are influenced by the evil one. And we can't get free in and of ourselves, can we? And therefore, we are enslaved. We are completely enslaved. But let's look at our text here. We know, verse 6, we know this doctrine that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That rebellious will that's carrying itself out in the body that it might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that we could be brought out of the Egypt, if you will, and set free to do what? To praise God. To serve God. To offer these bodies now to kind of look ahead. We're going to see this in, in verse 15 and forward in Romans 6. 
to offer our bodies as, as slaves of righteousness. Does that make sense? Now, uh, before I close, someone was saying, now, Rick, what about Ephesians 4.22? I mean, this all sounds good and all, but Paul tells us to put off the old self. And what about this tension that we have? I mean, as we go through those doors in a few minutes, we're good right now, but in a little bit, it's going to be back to that battle. You know, this battle. What about that battle? If that old self has been crucified, why do we have this struggle with sin? And it's because of this reason. When the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans or in Ephesians 4.22 to put off the old self, he's not denying that that old self was crucified. That old self has been crucified. But the influence, the influence is still alive and well. This might help you. I preached on this text when I preached my presbytery sermon years ago. And the... The, my, my point, the point that I made with that, with that message, listen, when you preach a Presbytery sermon and like that, you don't forget your sermon. Trust me on that. You do not forget it. At that time, there were a lot of commercials for the armed services. And do you remember the be all you can be commercials? Be all that you can be. I used that slogan and I used it this way. I, I, I modified it a little bit and I said, let's be all that God has made us to be. Let's be that all, let's be my point, the point that I kept drilling in that sermon was, let's be all that God has made us to be. Be careful with Romans 6 and verse 6. It's not a command for you to go do anything. Instead, it's an explanation of what God has done to you. It's not a command for us to go out, okay, I'm going to go out here and now I'm going to go out and I'm going to die to sin and I'm going to live to Jesus. Well, yeah, let's do that. But let's do that understanding that God has rendered us dead to sin and alive to God. Right now, Paul is in Romans, Paul is talking about what God has done in us. In Ephesians 4.22, he's talking about what we do in response. It's just, it's just two sides of the same coin, if you will. When we go through those doors, let's be everything that God has made us to be. Because you see, when we go back, we, it's easy for us to go back and live the way we used to live. That's very easy for us to do. But when we do that, we're not being true to who God has made us to be. When I act like the old Rick Anderson, which I do, find myself doing. I'm not behaving the way I'm supposed to be behaving. And somebody could come alongside of me and say, you know, Rick, you haven't been raised to live like that. You're not being who you are. And they're right. If you're in Christ, who's your father? Your father's in heaven. And as we grow older, we have a tendency to act like our father and our mother. But when we behave the old way, we're not acting like our father. We're not acting like our mom. We're not acting like a family member of God, are we? And Paul's saying, put that away. Put that away. Put off the old self. 
which was fitting in your former manner of life. That is who you used to be. But you died with Christ. You see how these, see how these two passages go together? They, at first, they look like they're, they're opposed to each other, but they go together like such a finely set of gears, don't they? One passage simply talks about what God has done in our lives. The other passage talks about what we do in response. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? When we go through those doors, go through those doors proudly acting like you're in Christ Jesus this morning. Does that make sense? You're no longer enslaved. You've been set free. Don't go through those doors thinking you're still in Egypt. You're not in Egypt. So let us not act like we did when we were in Egypt. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching, Father, so complicated and so difficult to make clear. Father, only by your grace and your help could we possibly do such a thing. Father, I pray that, Lord, you'll help us to understand it, but more than understand it, help us to put this in our lives, Father. We so desperately need it. Father, there are so many that are struggling with sin, struggling with sometimes the same sin over and over. Father, may this uh, especially speak to us. And Father, it's all of us. It isn't just some of us. All of us have sins that we struggle with over and over and over. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to put this into our lives, that we will see, that we will reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus, that we would carefully consider this doctrine, that we would carefully consider this great truth, and that we would act in accordance to what you have made us, that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.